All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. In our 34th year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's Moneywise program, I turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from this past week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 781 points, or 2.2%. The S&P 500 last week was down about 94 points, or 2.1%. And the NASDAQ last week was down about 354 points, or 2.6%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 4.1%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 13.8%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 27%. So can we say that we're in the uh, dog days of summer? And I'm not just talking about the, the, the heat dome that's been hanging over the state of Texas for the past couple of months. It's like the little pullback in the market is has a direct correlation to the heat index. You know, <laughs> is that what it is? Well, As the temperature rises? The market starts going down a bit, yeah. Well, yeah. as we... Jeff, I would call it an August swoon. Yeah, but I I think there's some good reasons for it. Um, well, could it could it have been the Nasdaq being up well over thirty percent going into the summer? You know, coming into the the last you know big month for summer in August. So you're well, saying I'm, we're not going to have a sixty percent year in the Nasdaq? Is that you're saying? No. Uh, most halfway likely the, not. Yeah, halfway we're up to the year we're up thirty percent. We're not going to see sixty handle on the Nasdaq. So. Uh, you know, we had we had ten year yields uh, up again this week. We had two year yield up again this week. Uh, we put some more money into government bonds this week. Uh, every time we get up in and around five percent yields, we pull the trigger and put another bond in the portfolio. Uh, how about things happening in China? How about one of the largest property? Uh, Developers in China going bankrupt here in the last week. Um, I mean, that could, that could have something to do with it. Obviously, their zero COVID policy was not a wise decision from their leadership, and it's starting to show up. In, I mean, it's showing up in their economy. 
and the slowdown of their economy. I guess the next question is, when is the fiscal stimulus coming from the Chinese coming, you know, the communist Chinese government? Well, they did. They lowered interest rates this week and had and had it had no effect. They also remember this little statistic they've been talking about for quite some time about the percentage of uh, unemployment amongst a bunch of the youth in China. And so they decided. So they decided this week to just not report it at all. So imagine if if uh, if the current administration could just say, you know, there's there's a particular economic statistic like. The leading economic indicators, which turned in what is did, did I hear this right? Was it number sixteen? Sixteenth straight negative month in a row. Wouldn't it be interesting if Joe Biden could make a phone call to? Uh, I'm trying to think. I can't remember off the top of my head who puts out that statistic. Uh, and just say, you know, guys, can you just stop putting that out? Uh, we'll just, you know, we just don't need to worry about that. We're not going to put out leading economic indicators anymore even though it's been negative for 16 straight months in a row. The last time that happened uh, was prior to what? 2008 was the last well, time that happened. Jeff, what well, with Jeff, there's no way Bi- Bidenomics is working like gangbusters. I mean, okay. it's it's all over, it's all over the the mainstream media how great everyone is doing. I mean, it feels so great with Bidenomics. We just got to give a big old pat on his back for his brilliant economic mind. Now, are you saying the economy's not strong, <laughs> Well, I, I'm saying that, yes, the economy is definitely a little bit stronger than anticipation, uh, into, you know, with I, I would, 2.4% GDP growth, but as far as the leading economic indicators, but really it comes down to how we feel as consumers. When we go to the gas pump, when we go to the grocery store, we know inflation has been moving in the right direction, but I talked in, I've been talking about this on previous shows is the, the margins that corporate America has. You know, the profit margins are just continuing to get bigger and bigger because all these corporations are taking advantage of higher inflation as the excuse for charging higher prices and the consumer who's been flush with cash has been paying it. And they're, yeah. they haven't protested yet I, by I not haven't. spending. I had a directive from the home office, aka dad, that you were st- you were supposed to stop talking about people flush with cash. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I, I look at the statistics. <laughs> so, I mean, I know dad might not like to look at the same statistics I look at or any at all. He just kind of pulls this out of the air. I'm actually coming with data. Oh, okay. So, that that's the difference. That's the difference. Well, he didn't say M two money supply at least. Yeah. Just well, no, you you took care of that for him. No, you took care of that for him, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Jeff. Yeah, you'll get, you'll get yelled at by Dad next. So, <laughs> you know, the brother from another mother. I never yeah. get that from your dad. I don't know why. You know. But I think it, I think it comes down to how the consumer feels when they're out there shopping, when they're out there spending money, when they see what's left at the end of the week after they pay for all their living expenses and their paycheck. You know, what's left? And I think it's, you know, it's, it's such a mixed signal, Jeff, cause you're right. You know, we, these leading economic indicators are all pointing to the direction that a recession is going to be coming sometime in the future. You know, maybe not this year, but possibly into 2024. But then you, talk about, you know, we're still seeing wage inflation, you know. So as inflation comes down, these workers 
are having more money in their pocket through the wage inflation. We're seeing productivity start to increase also. I know Jeremy Siegel this past week, who's a professor at the Wharton School of Business, talked about how productivity has been really starting to ramp up and how positive that is also, you know, from an economic standpoint with the elevated productivity numbers. But, you know, the, the, the bottom line is it's, it's again, what's in your wallet, what's in your purse at the end of the week after you spend for your living expenses and what you have left. And when we talk about the market, this is a, you know, I don't want to say typical, but this is something that we a lot of times see in the month of August and September is a little bit of sluggishness in the market. And with this, how far, how high we ran up coming to the middle part of the year, it's no surprise that we have this short-term corrective move. Well, with that, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, recapping the happenings of Wall Street this past week, you know, another down week on the major indexes, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ down a little bit over 2% apiece. Uh, as we've talked in the last couple of weeks of shows, you know, being in August, we have a seasonality effect. We also had, of course, the strong run-up as we're coming into the summer for the markets. And so we talked, you know, even going back a month ago, that we're definitely due for a, a pullback, a little bit, a kind of a pause that refreshes. I know, Joe, you've been sworn off by Dad saying that it's a healthy correction uh, because yeah, nobody yeah. likes to see uh, – yeah, we're not allowed to say that either – that was um, another memo. Yeah, that was in another memo. So we got Dad, you know, armchair quarterbacking as the director of the show, uh, sending in his uh, his highlights and lowlights. But th- this is something that we typically see. And, of course, we next week we've got uh, Jackson Hole, which is the, you know, economic symposium where we're going to hear, uh, you know, Jay Powell. He's going to be talking. I don't think he's going to be sounding dovish at all. He's going to continue to talk tough as the Fed's going to continue to talk tough, just like the minutes that it came out. You know, it was it this past week or the week before where the minutes came out and the market responded as, as you would expect with more hawkish rhetoric coming out of the Fed. But we've talked about on this program at nausea, the Fed is going to continue to talk tough about raising interest rates and combating inflation. This is, this is kind of a known thing that they're going to be doing. Um, because they're still wiping a cream pie off their face over inflation being transitory going back a year and a half ago, you know, year and a half ago plus. So they're going to continue to talk tough. Well, at the, go, go ahead, Joe. Jeff talked about something last, last segment, and I've been watching this. I mean, we're talking about the, the, the 10-year Treasury where it closed Friday, right, you know, right around four and a quarter. Well, that's the highest the 10-year Treasury's been in 16 years, 
So we talked about it maybe a month ago or so. There is an alternative now. And then you have money markets getting position traded money markets yielding a little over 5%. You know, of course, people are going to start taking some profits and, 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 but anyways, but that's what I'm seeing also in the last week. To me, that was a big deal is where the treasury yield hit, you know, on a, on a, a 16 year high. So I want to get y'all's take on that. I mean, I think that has something to do with a little bit more of the pullback we had this week too. So, well, yes, we, we it, definitely it, it, see. It serves as, to me, it serves as a, it serves as a cap on, on how, how far and how fast markets could go higher. Yes. Governor. Um, the other thing we all have to, you know, though I mentioned these two, these, these two little data points about, you know, China's one of large, China's largest property developers going bankrupt here in the last week and China manipulating the news flow, you know, showing uh, to try to uh, sweep under the rug the weakness of their economy. Um, are there other things in their economy that are also weak that are also being swept on the rug? Is it, are they the is this this particular property developer the only property developer that uh, uh, is is under strain? How you know how much money from other countries has been loaned to these property developers in China to build these projects these these phantom cities and that comes home to roost in these other countries? You know, I, I hate to throw any gloom and doom out there, but I also like, you know, I think there's some folks out there that, that man, that are managing money today that weren't around in the, say, the summer of 1997 when we had a situation where Thailand's, you know, currency collapsed, which, which then created this contagion that spread throughout Asia and eventually made it over to the U.S. with a little market meltdown. And what happened the following year? Russia devalued its currency. We had long-term capital management collapse and the Fed had to jump in and save, and save the day, um, again in, in the summer of 1998. And dad and I remember that day very well because it greatly affected an investment fund that we were involved in at the time. So there are always you know, there's these shocks out there that could happen to the system at any time. Now I'm not saying that we need to prepare our portfolios for Armageddon. That's not what I'm saying, and I'm not saying that there's an imminent currency collapse that's going to be happening in, in Asia, or that there's going to be some kind of contagion that develops from the, what's the situation with the prop with the property developers in China because this is not new news. This has been going on for years. But what I'm saying is, is as an investor, uh, you have to be prepared to make uh, moves in your portfolio very quickly if things deteriorate. And sentiment has been very good this year, as we all well know. I mean, in the U.S., NASDAQ, absolutely. In the, in the NASDAQ up 27% year to date. And, and a lot of that sentiment, that positive sentiment has been focused in the Magnificent Seven which has not been so magnificent here of late, no surprise, right? Uh, Never go broke taking a profit. And and though, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that thought interest rates weren't going to go any higher. You know, the Fed made its last interest rate increase, and guess what? Interest rates have started to trend back up again. And uh, it's definitely had an effect. Yeah, go look at bond performance year-to-date 
ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Bond performance year to date. This is through Thursday. This does not include Friday, and I believe it, rates may have, may have ticked down slightly on Friday. The Bloomberg yeah. U.S. aggregate, which is the aggregate uh, of performance of all government, investment-grade corporates, I believe it includes municipals, but don't quote me on that. It's a huge measure of the overall health of investment-grade fixed-income investing. And through Thursday, including interest, it's down for the year. We'll call it flat. I'll I'll I'll, re- I'll rephrase it because it's down 0.07%. We'll call that statistically flat for the year. Now it was up just a, a handful of weeks ago. It had a positive return year to date. So this move up on the long end of the yield curve, meaning longer maturity interest rates have gone up, the price of the securities have gone come down has had a detrimental effect now on the performance of, of bonds. And I heard some statistics this week about, you know, like one, three, five, ten year compounded returns on fixed income instruments being mostly negative. Can you imagine that? You know, mostly about what happened last year. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of gains got wiped out in what happened last year, but here we are, uh, seven months and two weeks. We're seven and a half months into the year. And we've got negative returns in the aggregate on bonds again. Now, that's not the case if you're just in corporates, and it's not necessarily the case if you're just in governments. Um, and it depends on your maturity ranges. But if you take the aggregate, you know, we've got negative, you know, we're just, bonds are not having, you know, bonds are being challenged again this year because interest rates have come up. And I don't think we should all just automatically assume, uh, as I think, you know, a lot of folks seem to be, this is, this is what they baked into their scenario is that the Fed's going to stop raising interest rates and interest, and they're going to be cutting interest rates in 2024. That's what's in everybody. That's what the vast majority of advisors cakes. That scenario. And I don't think you can necessarily really hang your hat on that. And you've got to be prepared for one, you know, does one, does any one of these shocks turn into something more substantial? You know, the war in Ukraine is still going on, ladies and gentlemen. You know, they're, they're ramping things up. I heard the Belarus guy threatening, you know, nuclear attack mm-hmm. if any, if anybody, you know, did anything in Belarus. And guess what the U.S. government just announced on Friday they're going to be doing? Turning over some F-16s. I don't, I don't remember if it was the U.S. I thought, I thought it was some other countries turning over their F-16s. I don't, I didn't remember if it was the U.S. Biden's going to be sending over some F-16s. Okay. So that was talked about on Friday. So is, is the, the, uh, geopolitical aspect of that conflict is not subsiding. So the word of the wise is, as Kyle, using one of Kyle's favorite phrases, don't get too far out of your skis and your the equity side of your portfolio. Well, Jeff, I think you're 70, 80% invested in a, in, a, in a modern asset allocation portfolio. Let's say for somebody over the age of 50, if you're, you know, 70, 80% invested in stocks, I would, I would be very careful about uh, being that far out of your skis in this environment. Well, and I think also, and we've talked about this on past shows, don't get lulled, lulled into a false sense of security because the S&P 500 
is up almost 14, you know, 14% year to date because that's been driven majority of it being driven by seven individual stocks. And when you look at the equally weighted S and P 500 index through Thursday's closes up 5.15%. Let's pause right there. Let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to money wise with Davidson capital management. You money wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street over this past week, you know, Jeff, back to your, your comment, and as I've been saying on the show, not to get too far out of, over your skis as far as equity allocation is concerned, and we're in the dog days of summer with the seasonality and, you know, this this shorter corrective move that we're having. Uh, and, and this is typical. You know, September is historically the worst month for the market. Next in line would be August. Uh, as Dad, if he was on the show, he said, you know, you really have to see what the market's going to do after Labor Day, typically the Wednesday or Thursday after Labor Day when folks come back from vacation to to get a real true bearing of the direction of the market. You know, I've just been seeing some stuff anecdotally from a volume standpoint. We've had some up days. The buying has been much stronger from a daily moving average standpoint on volume than on the sell side. You can't draw any conclusions in August. Yeah, it's hard it's just something I've noticed. I've noticed I haven't seen much of that this year where there seems to be for those coming in to buy, have been buying with a little bit more conviction, I would say, for the longer term and on the sell side, and not so much. But this is the situation you run into in August. A lot of the A-teamers go on vacation. They take several weeks off, and you have kind of the B and C managers. Now, of course, the Davidson Capital Management, you always have the A-team on the field. And the point, Jeff – we never leave. That's right. If our clients and our clients know that we have balls and chains around our ankles in front of our monitors during market hours. But you know, Jeff, going back to your point, it all comes down to the importance of active management. You know, it's not only active management, but it's asset allocation. You know, asset allocation could be is the first line of defense in your portfolio. And even if you just have a 60-40 allocation, how is the 60% of your equity allocation? How is it positioned? Are you 100% large cap growth? Do you have any value? Do you have any growth at a reasonable price? So even if you have a 60% allocation to stock, you can still build in some protection within just that portion of your portfolio with appropriate diversification across multitudes of different asset classes. You know, that's the key. You know, one thing I've been talking about on this program for, you know, quite some time now, and I actually had a question about this from a client of ours out in Houston, is, uh, you know, looking for stocks, looking for companies that have wide economic moats and what an economic moat is. And just a quick summary, companies that have large economic moats have a very strong captured customer base. So it makes them a lot more resilient during economic downturns because their customer base 
typically will not leave to go to a competitor for a multitude of reasons, whether it's cost, whether it's the time of training their employees for a new software system or a new hardware system. So, you know, that's some positions that we've been building across our asset builder accounts where we've done a little bit of equity nibbling in and around the last, you know, six to eight weeks have been building the position in our wide economic mode exchange traded fund. Uh, and then also the individual stocks that we own. It's a strong combination of growth at a reasonable price, value, and large cap growth. So we have some protective measures just built into the equity allocation we already have. But again, at the end of the day, you cannot replace active management. Making a decision when a decision needs to be made based on current market conditions, whether it's economic or geopolitical. Yeah, Joe. Well, I want to get on something Jeff was talking about earlier with uh, uh, actually geopolitical risk, if you will. And really when you have that shock and you have that down day or you have the Asian flu or you have the tech bubble, you have a significant event in your portfolio, your first line of defense is your allocation. It's almost you cannot react quick enough sometimes to do what we're talking about and being active with your portfolio. You know, once the dust settles, then you can make adjustments. But I wanted to talk about that. I want to talk about it last week a little bit. But I think if you look at some of the things that have happened in the past, they happen quickly and they're dramatic and they're painful. And sometimes you just can't act quick enough on your own. And now active managers can. Okay. But it's still hard for even the best active manager to react that quickly. And our first line of defense is proper allocation in our stocks and proper allocation in our fixed income. And we're being patient right now with, you know, 15, 20%. In a position traded money market account, you'll know over five percent. But that's anyways, that's what I wanted to point out. And and Jeff well, had a good point about geopolitical risk. It can be bad quick. So No, no, that that's that's absolutely true. And and even if you're with a manager that says they're active, you know, really go back and look to see how active that truly is. And you can see that by looking at trade confirmations, looking at statements. You know, if you've been in a position for years and years, and there's and the nothing has ever happened in it, and you're just curious, you know, pick up the phone and ask the question, why? You know, because I know that there's definitely some stocks in our portfolio that we have owned for a multitude of years. Now, we've scraped profits, you know, periodically throughout the time that we've owned them. We've adjusted allocations in them. But from a fundamental standpoint, they've been rock solid, and they've been great performers in our portfolio, where other stocks, not so much. You know, and that's that's just the world of asset management. You know, as we'll say to any prospective client, any current client, we'll make 10 decisions. Six to seven of them will work, but three to four of them won't. You know, no one has that crystal ball. And if they have that crystal ball, they're doing something illegal. And that's something <laughs> to, that's true. You know, okay. you know, they, they don't, no one has that crystal ball. You know, you have your methodology, you have your investment management philosophy, you have your your in and out points, but no manager on planet Earth is always going to get every single decision right. But the key is, are you working with an advisor when maybe something doesn't work out that you can pick up the phone and they can fully explain to you what the methodology and thought process was about why they had chosen that security, why they had made that decision, and why it didn't work out? I have a feeling that 9.9 out of 10 folks listening to this show working with another advisor, they couldn't answer that question. We're the point one percent that can, because we're in our portfolios in and out every single day. 
sitting in front of the portfolio is going to answer those questions at the drop of a hat. Well, maybe another reason is most most folks are not in actively managed portfolios. True. And that's and that's the that's the biggest problem that we see in the vast majority of portfolios is that the set it and forget it, uh, which is the Wall which is which is part of Wall Street's business model. The Monte Carlo analysis, design, unfortunately, <laughs> shotgun approach to investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's that's uh, that's in, deeply embedded in uh, the Wall Street business model, and why is that? Well, because that keeps that keeps profits high when you ha- when you have high you know high fee structures and low activity in portfolios. I mean, there's not there's not a lot happening. There's not a lot being adjusted. There's not a lot. Uh, uh, Change happening when 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 an exogenous shock that like I just talked about in the, you know ninety seven ninety eight or what happened last year we all saw that ex- the, the the shock that was coming in the bond market we had no idea how big it, big it was going to be but we knew that all the chickens for the fifteen years or how many years we have thirteen years of zero interest rate policy that was just then just totally threw a couple of cans of gasoline on that fire with COVID, you knew some, that, that there was going to be an asset class that got burned. And we saw, we, we saw the flames coming. And we made adjustments to the portfolio to compensate for that and much to the, to the benefit of the portfolio surviving, you know, one of the worst years this century. Uh, I think one of the five worst years in uh, the 34 plus you know year of of Davidson Capital Management in terms of overall market performance. Uh, <clears throat> this year has been. Uh, I hate to overuse the word remarkable, in 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 light of uh, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. Uh, I believe it's 11 times. I may may have. I may have lost count there, but I thought. Uh, it, no, it's it's more than that. I think it's thirteen or fourteen. Thirteen or fourteen. Maybe, maybe right. I lost count. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, <laughs> it's a lot. That, most that, most that, in forty years. Most, most in most forty in, years. Most in forty years, and the market has had, uh, other than like you know, last year had a negative reaction. This year, the reaction uh, has not been negative. Mostly driven by the Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven. Uh, going to have another er- set of earnings that are going to come out here in about two months. Well, the big one is Nvidia. next week, and that's Nvidia. Well, well, Nvidia's earnings them, coming out. One there's left. One, there's one of them coming out, and it'll probably be pretty good. It's the next one that's going to be even more interesting. Well, and I just wanted how, how to much, put- how much will expectations be on that one to to wow the wow investors. Well, just to put this kind of wrap this up in a bow, I, I just it's this is kind of the the thought process that should really be be uh, the point I really want to drive home is there's a big difference between relationship management and active asset management. There is a huge difference, and unfortunately, the majority of the legacy distribution system on Wall Street are more concerned about relationship management and less less concerned about active asset management. Is that a fair statement, gentlemen? Very fair. And we see this 
every single week doing portfolio reviews and analysis for prospective clients. Well, with that, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, wanted to kick off some investor education in this segment before we got to the top of the hour. And, and we've had this conversation throughout, I mean, going all the way back to what, 05, Jeff, when we started the Money Wise program on KKTX. Um, and it really revolves around the cottage industry of fear-mongering. And I know we, I mean, Jeff, what are some of the subjects of the fear-monger we've heard over the years? Hyperinflation. You know, we're going to have hyperinflation. It's it's hyperinflation. It's the collapse of currencies. Um, Those are the two primary fear-mongering subjects. Or the complete collapse of Wall Street. No, no, not not so much. The thing that's yes, Joe. Wall Street Casino. That's another. Yeah, one. yeah. You well, hear that in radio show it, commercials. It's a catchphrase, especially especially post two thousand and eight. The, the the thing that's that's different about when we started the show in two thousand and five to where we are here, you know, eighteen years uh, later is the the rise of social media because you know Facebook and Twitter now known as X and all Instagram of, you know it, all of these different venues where news can be disseminated those were in their more in their infancy 18 years ago you know, we had stuff like MySpace right Ooh, going way back, <laughs> you know, that? Or, you know, AOL, you know, things like things along those lines, dial-up internet, and we also, I don't, we, I don't think we had Fox News back then, at least in its current iteration. Uh, I'm, I, the, the, there's always been conservative talk radio. Whether the rhetoric, you know, it's it's a little bit hard to remember that many years back the kind of ads they would be running. You know, on radio, uh, you know, that, that I that I consider to be like prepper ads. You know, go out and get your, you know, 24, 24 days of food to put in a can and keep it in your basement. You know, ready for the apocalypse type thing. Uh, I don't remember those ads running as much you know, when we started doing the show in, in two thousand and five. Yeah, we had equity indexed annuities back then, and we fought those tooth and nail. You know, those were one of the elixirs that solved all risk problems in someone's portfolio. And then there may be less expensive, but just as onerous uh, cousins, the, you know, variable annuity, which I think Joe wants to talk about an example here if we've got some time left in this segment. Uh, but 
So here of this you know, here in the especially the last uh, especially the last two years, you know, when you have when you when you have a negative market like we had in twenty twenty two, uh the the folks that want to push precious precious metals just come out of the woodwork. It's it's e you know it's easy pickings to talk about you know, how how gold is going to be that uh, uh, the medicine for the portfolio that you know you, you that they 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 build it up like there's no way you could lose money. And they'll say that, but they make it sound like that you know if you invest in gold, you are going to be a winner. Well. And over what time frame, and 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 what to what extent are you going to be a winner? And are there other things now that are just that are even more liquid and have the highest returns in twenty two years? If you're that afraid of something, don't put it in gold. Put it in cash. Now, am I advocating go to one hundred percent cash? No, I'm not. But. Is is there something else other than a hugely marked up uh, gold IRA from who knows that's advertised on the radio or some article you got in your news feed from some ultra conservative newsletter that you subscribe to or conservative for that matter? I wonder if you if these really come out on the liberal side because I really don't read you know much of the liberal side side newsletters. I wonder if they have, they run gold ads there or if it's strictly on you know the far the conservative side. And I'm not I'm not slamming conservatives here. I'm not slamming you know liberals either. I'm just saying it does seem to be focused more. I don't see a lot of ads running on CNN for gold. But I see a lot of ads running for them on Fox. Yep. Right. Well, it's it's with the fear mongering industry. They always have the right product at the right time when you need exactly. it, and it's based on fear. But here's the thing, you know, to your point, Jeff, about cash, position traded, money market, or treasuries. The gold GLD. With anyone that's listening that just has to have gold for whatever reason, we do not recommend owning the physical metal. You buy the exchange traded fund symbol GLD. Well. So far, year-to-date, through Friday's close, the GLD is up 3.4%. Our position-traded money market is yielding 5.2. U.S. Treasury bond, which is risk-free and guaranteed by the claims-paying ability of the federal government, which for some listeners might not mean a lot to you, but that's the fact. It's a riskless investment. You're getting yield to maturities north of that than the GLD. And here's the other thing I have to ask these fear mongers that are talking about the collapse of the U.S. dollar. Well, last I checked, commodities are denominated in U.S. currency globally. So if you're buying physical bullion with the U.S. dollar, you have to then eventually sell it for the U.S. dollar. But if they're pitching or selling you on the idea that the dollar is going to collapse, why would you want to own this? It just—it's confusing to me. Use a currency that they're telling you is going to collapse. Own this commodity, and then eventually you're going to sell it for a dollar that has collapsed, according to them. Does that make well, any sense the, to you? Same, it doesn't make any sense to num- me. The same number of people—this—the same number of times people have predicted the end of the world is the same number of times that people have predicted the collapse of the dollar, and neither yes. one of them has come true. 
that that's 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 true. And like you said, Jeff, owning the physical commodity has a huge premium to buy, and then you're going to get hit with a huge discount to sell. I know. Just I know we're running close to the top of the hour break, but I know one of our clients years back. I think, if memory serves me correct, paid about a thirty percent premium to buy the bullion, and then when he wanted to liquidate it, was getting charged a huge discount on the other side. And let's just say that I think it swore that client off from ever owning the physical bullion ever again. Because the last I checked, HEB is not taking a gold coin. (laughs) Neither is the gas station. And that's not going to be happening anytime soon, regardless of what happens to the dollar. But for the dollar to collapse, it's not going to happen. So just be be very well aware there is a cottage industry of fear-mongering and do not get suckered in by their sales pitch. With that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we'll take the break, go into the news, and when we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise, guys, will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education And the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand, and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, 
I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. Um, and the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an actual an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors again goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, were registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial advisor. Financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It, it it does, and a, again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401k's and of course and, Bar- president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the department of labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards securities and exchange commission why don't you put these standards in as well and mary jo white the head of the sec makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations 
and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years. So why is it just being intensely studied over just the last couple of months? Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, the story the no, you didn't check the clock the 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 real world example I'm going to give and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean several, I mean we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client 
who was going to be retiring and had, or, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, uh, the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting, I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha, got it, understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure, why are you here? He said, well... I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers at different offices at different firms in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity, that annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both 
suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial advisors, wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker if he or she holds a Series 7 securities license. If he or she does, then it's, it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And it's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds as a fiduciary, we have to go with the government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable, what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to it, to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it bl- I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interests in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's, a, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires 
an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand broker-dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients as a mutual fund wholesaler were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, And every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds, and some not-so-good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor-performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now, again, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, It's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged 
by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. Because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were, the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid. Let's, let's get some money on the sidelines. Let's get some cash on hand. And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid, because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even, look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio, we could bet the potential client you own one of these funds. From a particular fund family. Just because we've been doing this, you know, in our 26th year of business, and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years, we see a pattern, we see a trend, and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms, it's no surprise. Now, listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking, well, gosh, how can brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in it's suitable. It's suitable. It's it's suitable. It, it's They're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, yeah, I, well, no, not, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fund families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas 
and they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. the part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. We and, and he asked him, "Would you give me the account?" Well, sure, we would. And he said, "Would you like to know what my experience is?" And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ, and he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show about just the number of don't don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you think making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know I will I do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and Financial planning has has really become a, a really booming industry. And there are designations, a certified financial planner, which is a very difficult designation to get. You have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test-taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But... You have to be very, very careful how this potential financial how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask, as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee-only? Are you fee-based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission? And you need to ask those questions. And if they're not giving you a straight answer, that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away. You, as a prospective client, have the right to ask a straight-up straight question and get a straight-up answer. Ask them, do you have your Series 7? If they have a Series 7, pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions. And that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard, if they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, Without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee-only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee-only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission. And being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, 
And, you know, what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily, but you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months. I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. Going to so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line as dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, 
and doing what's called a broker check. By Googling, broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in high the school, yeah, in the high school you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I, I found a, a gentleman here in town, we, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order, I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So, again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. That's really what they're there for. They, You can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't 
want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with, they won't know you from Adam, and you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction, where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets. You can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.